you have your Bible, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have your Bible, no worries. Uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you, or you can just follow along in your bulletin, uh, and it'll also be printed on the screen behind me. We've been studying uh, the books of First and Second Samuel uh, this fall, and we've been looking specifically at the life of David. And we come this morning to another difficult passage in our series. This morning, we're going to see it's the story of David and Bathsheba, and so we're going to see uh, David fall big time this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Next week, we're going to do kind of part two of this, and we'll see David's restoration and his interaction with Nathan and look at Psalm 51 as well. But this morning, we're focusing on David's uh, fall here in 2 Samuel 11. And so follow along with me. Uh, This is a very sobering passage. It's uh, very vivid, but it's God's Word. And so perhaps more than ever, we need to remember that God's Word um, is useful and profitable uh, for us. So let's uh, read this passage together. This is God's Word, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel... And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been uh, been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your souls live, I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today and also tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie uh, on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. 
and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and they fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, this passage is gut-wrenching. It's hard to read. It's also hard to hear. And I can imagine that it is especially hard this morning uh, because there are perhaps those here this morning that have lived the story. Others maybe hear it and maybe the response is, I would never. Father, whether we have lived this story or not, I pray that all of us would find commonality with the fact that we are really just like David. Would you help us this morning to find hope and encouragement through your word, through this difficult passage? Would you come through your spirit and give us the courage and the grace to stop our hiding and to bring our sin out into the light? Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen. People who know nothing of the Bible or who are perhaps would call themselves non-Christians, they know two stories commonly about David. They know David is associated with Goliath and they know David is associated with Bathsheba, typically. And if you think about these two stories, and we've looked at Goliath earlier in our study, they happen at very different times in the life of David, at very different points in his life. You remember David fought Goliath when he was just a late, in his late teens, just a teenager. Remember, it's when he was the runt. He was uh, the forgotten, the throwaway son, and, he, and no, no one wanted him. He was a young shepherd boy, and so with a few smooth stones and a sling, he defeats the nine-foot giant, okay, early in his life, very weak, He was considered a runt. Now, when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, things are very different. Okay? David, at this point in his life, has been walking faithfully with God for over 20 years. And we would say of David something like, man, he is such a mature man of God. We would say he's a godly man who's been walking for a long time with God. Not only that, he's the king. Not only that, he's a successful king. He's powerful. He's confident. He has everything. And I want you to think about those two stories with me. If we think about it, when we think about David and Goliath, he was weak. He was fighting a giant. We think he doesn't have a prayer. That's when he's at his weakest, of course. Or do we think about David in his prime over 20 years of walking with God, a man after God's own heart. 
And we think, well, of course this is not the time in his life when he's going to blow it big time because he's been a Christian for such a long time and he's got it. Well, you see, that's the sobering part, isn't it? It's when David is mature. It's when he's been walking with God for over 20 years. It's when he's successful. It's at that point in his life that his life begins to unravel and come apart at the seams. See, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see David, remember that he was the man showing kindness to Mephibosheth and saying, come sit at my table. And he was the man at the beginning of 2 Samuel, if you can look at it, chapter 10, where he's wanting to show kindness to an enemy king, but now he's a man of no kindness. Now he's a man who takes someone else's wife. And not only that, he puts him in the grave. You see, this story, it's meant to give you whiplash. Did you feel the whiplash? This story is written in a way, and the author wants you to feel this story, and wants it, he wants to shake us and wake us and stir us with this passage this morning. And the question that we're going to look at is, how in the world does this happen? How do you go from being on the top of your game to losing everything? Or let me put it another way. How do, how do you make sense in your worldview of a godly person like David doing something and doing the things like we see in this passage? Well, in a word, sin See, unless, friends, you have a worldview that places the sinfulness of humanity right at the center of this story, then this story will confuse you this morning. You see, it's only as we understand that we're just like David and the sinfulness of humanity is at the center, then, then and only then will we understand that all of us, whether we've lived this story or not, we understand and leave this morning understanding ourselves Just a little bit better. This story, we're going to see three things in regard to sin. Where sin begins, your note taker. What it looks like and how it's healed. Where it begins, what it looks like and how it's healed. Let's look at number one, where sin begins. Look at verse one with me. In the springtime of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, back then the armies didn't battle in the harsh winter. It's too cold. They waited for the ground to thaw and for spring to hit and the snow to begin to melt. That's when the battle actually began. And notice the passage, Israel goes out into battle. And if you've been coming in 1 and 2 Samuel, who's always the one to lead the battle? David, the warrior. And notice very intentionally the narrator. Look at the end of verse 1. David remained in Jerusalem. He stayed home. Not only does he stay, but he also sleeps. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Now, we don't know whether he was sleeping from the night before and he slept really, really late or he took a good long nap. This is not a commentary on rest and relaxation, but what it is, it's a warning for us against complacency. David didn't think he needed to go to the battle. David had arrived. 
He was confident. He was the man, and rightly so, because think about all that he had. He was the king. He was on top of his game. He was strong. Israel had never been in a better place, and everyone respected him. He had been the runt, the throwaway son, and now he had everything. He had it all. He was successful, and the most successful king that Israel had ever known. Then you hear it, don't you? You hear the echoes of Eden. Remember Eve, as she was in the garden, she saw something that she desired, and she had to have it, and so she took it. Look at the end of verse 2. Does it sound like Eden to you? David seeing something that he desired, and so he takes it. You need to understand that it was not uncommon for women to bathe on the rooftop back in those days. And I say that because I want this to be understood. She was doing nothing wrong. Everyone did this. All the rooftops were level, but there was one rooftop that always stood above everyone else, and it was the king's roof. And it makes sense because the king was looking out and protecting his people. He stood above everyone else so that he can look and serve the people. But on this day, David is serving no one but himself. David sees something and he has to have it. Verse 3. He asks about her. He said, who is that? Who, who is that woman? And the servant says, oh, that's Bathsheba. Now, think, I want you to get this because the narrator, it could not be clearer. The narrator is making it very clear. Oh, that's Bathsheba. She's Eliam's daughter and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It cannot be any clearer what's being communicated here. She's married. And not only is she married, you're married. She's off limits, David. And David doesn't care. He ignores that and he says, go get her and bring her to me. You see David using his power to get what he wants. Look at verse 4. He takes her and he lays with her and then sends her home. And this is... uh, It needs to be said, if you can look at those passages and look at the passage, it's easy to miss. But did you notice Bathsheba's name is only mentioned one time in the narrative? Did you pick up on that? It's only mentioned one time, and it's not by David or the narrator. It's by the servant. Why? Because the narrator is making a point. He only refers to her as her, or in verse 5, the woman. The narrator is showing us that the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, is not treating her as someone with great dignity in the image of God, but it's rather treating her with an object to be used. Very clear. And then we get, it, get to the end of that section, and she says that I'm pregnant, and the narrator wants you to know without a shadow of a doubt that this child belongs to David. That's why in verse 4 you have in parentheses the note about her cleansing. 100% that this is David's child. Told you it was difficult. And the question then is, so what? I mean, what can we learn from a story like this? Well, remember, we have been tracing this theme throughout the fall, the ordinary Christian life, as we're looking at David's life. And what we learn here is that the ordinary Christian life is when you know yourself to be weak. 
That's the ordinary Christian life. When you know yourself to be weak, when you don't trust yourself, that is what the Bible says is when you are actually the healthiest. It's not when you're the strongest. You see, in your strength, when you think you're strong, you get complacent and self-confident and self-assured, just like David does here. And that puts you in the most danger. Think about it. David, at the height of everything, and that's when his life begins to unravel. Why? Because David's no longer weak. David no longer sees himself as someone who is needy, but David is self-assured, and he says, I got this. I don't need anything. And he lost touch of his need for God. I heard a story by Brian Habig. He's the campus minister, used to be for years with RUF at Vanderbilt, and now he's a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina. And he tells this story about one of his friends who was in alcohol rehab. And he says his friend, as he was going to to rehab for many years, he said over and over, every Friday, he would always see this older gentleman who who had been sober, Uh, for 40 years, and he said, this guy, this older gentleman showed up every single Friday, and so finally, this young guy who was in recovery looked at him, and he says, I mean, come on, you've been sober for 40 years, why do you still come to this meeting? You know what the older gentleman said? Because I know I'm 15 minutes away of being plastered. That is a picture of someone who has great self-awareness about their own heart. Of someone who understands Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Friends, one of the healthiest things that you can do for yourself, spiritually speaking, is have a healthy distrust of your own heart. Uh, Or have a healthy self-awareness Of your heart. It's when you're the healthiest, is when you learn to say and to realize, I'm not strong enough to handle that. Or I'm not strong enough to handle that temptation because I'm way too weak. I cannot not do something stupid. You see, it's when you realize uh, that, or when you are most confident in yourself, that is when you are the most vulnerable. It's when you look at other people or you look at even a story like this and say, I would never do something like that. Or you look at another person and you say, can you believe they did that? Or maybe you look at parents who are walking in and you look at them and they're having trouble with their children and you're thinking, they are terrible parents. If they would only raise their kids like us, then their kids wouldn't turn out that way. Friends, if you can relate to any of those things this morning, you're in danger. You're in grave danger. You see, it's when you think you've got this Christianity thing figured out. That's when you are actually in the most danger, spiritually speaking. Why? Because you lack self-awareness. You lack knowledge of your own heart because you have forgotten how much you need Jesus. Every moment... Of every single day. Secondly. What does it look like? What does this sin look like? And it's very vivid in this passage. I want you to think about this story now. David didn't wake up at the beginning of 2 Samuel 11 and say, 
I am going to kill somebody today. I'm going to have someone killed, or I'm going to do something I deeply regret that will ruin my life and seriously impact my life. He did not wake up that morning thinking that, but yet at the end of the story, think about how quickly we get through this story. At the end, an innocent uh, person dies, Uriah the Hittite, along with other soldiers in David's army. David has a child. He's broken over half the Ten Commandments. And if you notice the last verse, God is greatly displeased with him. There's no question what God thinks about it. And the question is why? What happened? Well, in a nutshell, instead of bringing his sin into the light and receiving grace and mercy and forgiveness, David decides that it would be better for him to cover up and hide. And if you notice when he does that, his shame and his sin gets worse and worse and begins to spiral deeper out of control. Why? Because he believes in this moment, this should sound familiar, He believes in that moment, in the moment of his sin and shame, that if I bring this out into the light, I will lose everything. I will not be forgiven. My life will be over. And so in that moment, the shame was screaming so loud that the best alternative, David thought, was to just simply cover it up and hope no one finds out and things will work out. But you see, David is a picture here of the futility of trying to cover up our shame instead of bringing it to the light. Because watch the downward spiral. Look at verses 6 through 9. David says, I've got a great idea. We're going to send Uriah home. I'm going to send him home to be with Bathsheba. And everybody will think it's his child. And I'll be good. What happens? Well, notice Uriah the Hittite. He's the man with integrity in the story. He's the man doing the right thing. And the king of Israel is not. Uriah the Hittite is the one who's caring for people. And David is not. And we see that all the way through the narrative, this contrast between David and Uriah. And we see Uriah showing more integrity than the king. So it doesn't work because Uriah says, I'm going to go be with my soldiers. I can't leave them. I'm going to sleep in front of the door so the plan doesn't work. Then look again at verses 10 through 12 or through 13. The spiral continues. David says, I've got a great idea. If that didn't work, I'm going to have him over for a party. And I'm going to get him drunk. And then I'm going to send him home. And notice very clearly who made Uriah drunk. Uriah didn't get drunk on his own. David made him drunk. See, the story shows us that a drunk Hittite in this situation is actually acting better than a sober king. And it gets worse. David's running out of options. He's at the end of his rope. He's desperate. And so he says, okay, here's a death warrant. And he puts his own death warrant Uriah's death warrant in his own hands and says, take this back to Joab Joab, and let him open it and he'll know what to do. You see, he knows that Uriah's got so much integrity that he wouldn't dare open the envelope before getting it in Joab's hands. And so the battle rages 
Uriah is pushed to the front lines, and Uriah, along with other soldiers, die. And now Bathsheba, very clearly it says, is a widow. She's without a husband. There you have it. There it is. King David, the man after God's own heart. The godly man who had been walking with God for over 20 years. And again, you might be thinking this morning, I would never do such a thing. Friends, with all due respect, please do not think that you're better than David. You are not. You're not, and I'm not. David was God's chosen king. David had actually heard from God audibly. God had spoken to him. He's written over half of the Psalms. And he didn't wake up that morning thinking, I'm going to commit murder. He didn't wake up with murder on his mind. And so then the question is, okay, well then how did he fall so drastically and so quickly? Well, in a a phrase, because sin grows subtly and grows very slowly. My family spent the weekend in our backyard. We've got a hundred-year water oak, hundred-year-old water oak in our backyard. You want to talk about an acorn or two? (laughs) We've got a few acorns to give you a picture and we're not even close. Two 33-gallon uh, uh, trash cans we filled up. And it, they didn't even scratch the surface. <laughs> but I want you to think about that acorn. A little seed. And you know the kind of potential that it has locked inside of it. An acorn has the potential to become a forest. Given the right weather and the right soil and just enough time, that seed can grow and produce a huge tree that can then produce an entire forest. I've heard Tim Keller use this story, but he talks about a boy when he was younger stole and broke his father's watch, his real nice watch that he would wear to work every now and then. And so his father got up one day and was looking for the watch And he couldn't find it. And so he was asking who took it and where it was. And the young boy lied. Said he he doesn't know what happened to it. Fast forward 30 years later, that boy is now a grown man. And he hits a young child on his way home from work and flees the scene. The young child eventually dies. The man is eventually arrested. And he is standing before the judge. And he looks at the judge And he says, this all started then, when I was a boy, and I lied about my dad's watch. That acorn grew, that acorn of sin, which started out as just a small lie, grew into a great tree of self-deception that enabled me to commit such a horrible hit-and-run crime. See, that's the uncomfortable truth, isn't it? The Bible says very clearly that everyone is capable of horrific evil. Because every one of us has the acorn called sin living inside of us. And given enough time and given the right situation, it can grow into an oak tree and then into a forest. And sin grows into a forest very quickly because, here it is, because it always seems so harmless to us. 
It always seems like ah, it's just an acorn. It's not that big a deal. I can cover it up and it'll all work out in the end because that's how sin works. It grows slowly and subtly. And then before you know it, like David, you wake up and you're in a place that you never thought you'd be. Thirdly, so how is sin healed? Now for the good news. Well, David's goal at this point had become not getting caught, right? And so when your goal is to not get caught, then you lie and you cover up and you hide as much as possible. And I want you to think about that just for a minute. God, David knew God, okay? He had been walking with God faithfully. But in this moment, I want you to think about how David views God. Think about his view of God in this moment. Yes, he's a man after God's own heart. He knew the kindness and he knew the grace of God. Why? Because remember, he showed it to Mephibosheth. And that was a picture of how God had loved him. So he knew it. But in this passage, it is a distant memory to him. Does that sound familiar? Anybody ever forget what God's really like? I do. Forget the love and the grace and the mercy of God? See, God, he forgot. And instead of bringing it to the light and getting forgiveness, he reveals, in this moment, David reveals that he has no confidence whatsoever in God's love and mercy because he runs and hides. And when we run and hide, we are saying, in a sense, I don't believe the gospel. I don't believe God's really that good, that Jesus would be that gracious and good with me. And so we cover up. And we cover up with more unrighteousness or we cover up with creating a false sense of righteousness. And David does both in this passage. We just spent the whole second point on him uh, covering up with unrighteousness. He hides and he tries to hide some more and, and it's more deceit. So he tries to cover up and avoid... Uh, God with unrighteousness, but then he also covers up with righteousness. Look at verse 26 and 27. Again, easy to miss, but Bathsheba's now a widow. And and it's very clear. David wants to come out smelling like a rose in this deal. (laughs) He's thinking, I'm going to be the knight in shining armor, the good guy that's going to come in and rescue this poor widow and bring her into my home and take care of our child. I will be good. I will be upstanding. That's how I'm going to fix this mess that I've made. We do the exact same thing, don't we? See, we forget. We forget God's grace and mercy to sinners. And like David, we cover ourselves and we avoid Jesus with our unrighteousness. Because it's one shameful act starts to spiral out of control. And in that moment, instead of bringing it to the light and confessing it, we think our only alternative in that moment is to hide and to cover up. Because see, that's what shame does. Shame always turns you in on yourself. Because shame screams at you. If someone finds out about what you've done, your life is over. Your career is over. No one's ever going to forgive you for this. That's what shame says. And so what it does, it keeps that unrighteousness going because you think in the moment, my only option is a double life. My only option is to cover my tracks. Or we try to cover up with righteousness, don't we? Just like David. 
And that too is a way of actually avoiding Jesus. Because like David, we think, hey, I've, I've done something really bad. I've got to cover it up by doing something really good. Ever done that? And so we have those days and we have them a hundred times. If we've had them once where we get up and come to church and on Monday morning, we'll say, that's it. <laughs> I'm done. Whatever that sin is for you, I'm done with that. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to double down on my scripture memory. I'm going to double down on reading my Bible. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to memorize scripture. I'm not going to miss my small group. I'm going to get my life back on track. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But they do show your hand. They show your hand because deep down what both of those responses show is that you don't really trust that God is merciful and loving and kind. Because if you did, you would bring those things, you would bring that shame to the light and say, here it is, Jesus. Take this. I know you're good. I know you're gracious. And so then the question becomes, And this is a good question. Okay, Jason, I hear you. I want to do that. But how do I know that when I bring that to the light that God's not going to crush me? How do I know that he's going to be loving and kind and merciful and not bring condemnation? Because all of us know, think about this, that deep down, violent, flagrant, heinous sin cannot go unpunished. We can't live in a world where God, you know, where, where God just lets things go. Or God would be considered unjust. And so what do we do? How do you know, Jason? The cross. The cross. It's because of the cross. You see, we see Jesus takes the punishment for the sin that you and I deserve. Because on the cross, God the Father hid his face from his Son so that you would never have to hide your face from him again. See, on the cross, we see the right view of God. We see that God is a God who gives grace and mercy to people who have blown it. It's on the cross we see Jesus hanging. There's a reason why he's hanging naked and exposed and completely vulnerable, because he's dying for your shame in that moment. Jesus is exposed so that he could cover you with his grace and mercy and his robes of righteousness. There's a guy by the name of Robert Robinson who became a Christian in the 1700s, uh, really uh, had a radical conversion. He was actually converted to Christianity when he was at a George Whitfield revival. He became a Christian. His life radically changed. He dedicated his life to the ministry. He was a pastor. He started to write many famous hymns. And then, just like David, one small decision kind of led to another, and he totally wrecked his life. And he ended up in a place that he never thought he would be, and he thought, there is no way I can ever go back to God because of the things that I've done. He ends up on a stagecoach, as the story goes, and he's, this woman gets in carrying her hymn book. And she sits across, and there's nowhere for him to go. He has to talk to this woman. And she starts talking uh, to Robert Robinson about this hymn that she had learned and had been singing. And it was, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. And she went on and on and on about it. And she said, this is an incredible hymn. And she talked about the streams of mercy and how moving that was. Robert Robinson looks at her and says, Ma'am, 
I am the poor, unhappy soul that wrote that hymn years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I could hear them and enjoy the feelings that I had then, if I could enjoy them now. And the woman looked at him and said, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. The streams of mercy are still flowing. And my question this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that in Jesus the streams of mercy are still flowing for you after the things that you've done in the places you've been? Do you believe that the streams of mercy still flow for the addict? For the adulterer? For the fits of rage that you struggle with? And yes, even for the murderer like David? And the answer is a resounding yes. See, because of Jesus, you no longer have to hide. We no longer have to cover it up. And we can bring our sin and shame into the light and let Jesus cover us with His righteousness. See, I told you that Jesus is better than you think. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word. It's hard, but I pray that you would take it and apply it to our hearts and change us. Would you give us courage to bring our shame and sin into the light? Would you help us to believe deep in our hearts that you really do love us and care about us? And um, Lord, apply this to our lives. Give us uh, grace uh, to also uh, have a good, healthy self-awareness about our lives and about our hearts and the things we struggle with. Take that confidence that we might have, the pride, take it away so that we could trust in you and realize that we are needy sinners, desperately in need of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.